and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Well, after the catastrophic events of the past week, one question emerges. Who will be more difficult to evict? Hamas from Gaza or Anthony Albanese from the Lodge? Neither of them has a shred of legitimacy. Hamas hasn't won an election since 2006, yet rules Gaza with an iron fist while kidnapping, raping and murdering women and children from Israel. Anthony Albanese assumes the election he won last year on a paltry 32% of the primary vote empowered him to pursue a pet project that his lovey friends in the inner city supported, but he knew would cause irreparable divisions everywhere else in the community. Worse, he was told more than three months ago that it was destined to fail, but pushed ahead with it anyway. Albanese's crime is not, of course, in the same league of, as the subhuman terrorists in Hamas, but by Australian standards, it's right up there with Kevin Rudd's lethal pink bats and former Liberal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg lending hundreds of billions of dollars to pay people to sit at home so they don't catch the flu. It was serious enough for no campaign spokesman, Warren Mundine, to finally crack yesterday. You know what, you know what? I'm, I'm, people are committing suicides in these communities. People are being raped and beaten. And this is the questions you come up with? Where's the about getting results, getting people reducing suicide instead of this nonsense that you people carry on with? It's about time. We had a vote tonight that said Australians want to get things done. Mundine's anger is thoroughly justified. Kids are suffering and committing suicide and Albo and his enablers in the brain-dead media have spent all year pursuing what the electorate rightly thinks is a fake solution. Albanese's plan now is not to do the honourable thing and resign, of course. That's not in the DNA of career politicians like him. Instead, according to The Australian Today, he will, quote, reaffirm Labor's commitment to advance reconciliation while pursuing treaty and truth-telling. Treaty and truth-telling? That's exactly what the result on the weekend said we did not want. Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk will go one further. Despite almost 70% of Queenslanders voting against the voice referendum, Palaszczuk today promised to forge ahead with a treaty between her Queensland government and Queensland Aborigines. In other words, the resounding message delivered by her own electorate on Saturday means nothing to her because she knows better. You know who else knew better than her electorate? Former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who in the middle of COVID declared herself to be the sole source of truth then, when that turned out to be, well, not entirely true, she scurried out of the country in April for a cushy job at Harvard University. On Saturday, Kiwis kicked what was left of her government into what will, with a bit of luck, be a decade or two in opposition. The same fate awaits Albanese and Palaszczuk. 
Well, now let's bring in one of the earliest and most astute critics of the Voice to Parliament referendum, Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland and regular commentator both here and in The Spectator Australia, James Allen. James, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me back, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio for a change. We're normally interviewing you from your... Uh, Slightly scruffy office up there in the University of Queensland. Well, <laughs> nice you, backdrop today. It was. It was nice of you to send the helicopter to pick me up. Thank you. That's <laughs> a pleasure. <laughs> Alan's got it for the rest of the yeah, afternoon. That's yeah, fair enough. Yeah. James, you were pretty confident from the start that the voice referendum would fail. How did you know? Uh, I just figured at the end of the day that uh, your regular Australian would not vote for unequal citizenship was where really what it boiled down to. I mean, there was that's the big moral problem. Uh, they they don't want to use the word race. Okay, based on characteristics you're born with, you're going to give special entitlements to a small chunk of the population that no one else gets. I mean, there are also political problems. This was going to tie up decision making in knots, especially if you're on the right side of politics, and the legal and constitutional problems were potentially enormous, but. Your average citizen just doesn't like the idea of this. I don't like the idea of it. And, you know, they did everything they could to game this referendum. They, they, it was the first one where the government didn't fund both sides, the first contested referendum, because they knew that the corporates, what did they give, almost $100 million? The no side limped along on $8 million. And it was a pretty crushing, you know, defeat for cosmopolitan inner-city establishment types. They, the only places that voted for this were inner city, big city, and Canberra constituencies. That's it. Yeah, well, Advance Australia played a pretty, uh, pretty yes. good game, um, but I've got to say, you've got to give credit to where it's due, James. You played a pretty good one yourself, too. You were a regular commentator and uh, obviously hit the bullseye quite often during that campaign. Well, you throw enough balls at the wall, Fred, one of them's <laughs> got to pay off. Yeah. Albanese was told months ago that the referendum would almost certainly fail. Why did he persevere and, loaded question, should he resign? I, you know, it's hard to know. I think partly they knew they had so much money that a few months ago they thought, we can still turn this around. You know, they, they had, what, 10, 15 times more money than no. They probably waited too long. And it, it turned out that having Hollywood types and celebrity sports stars and the big end of town preach to people and tell them they're sort of moral cripples if they don't vote yes was counterproductive. I mean, in some ways, the best weapons the no side had were getting Noel Pearson up there and Marshall Langton and some of the big end of town, Alan Joyce, painting Planes, yes. I mean, there was, it was so sanctimonious and condescending, and the pretense that it was just a modest little request, this was the m most major attempt to amend the Constitution. And at the end of the day, people figure out what is effectively prefer prevarication and misdirection. So they figured it out. Yeah, well, I've got to say, I mean, I'm pleased with the result, but there were times during this long campaign that I suspected that the Australian people might fall for all that Hollywood guff and uh, and the, the spin that was coming from the yes side. But, uh, you know, true to the Australian sort of culture and character, you know, the, uh, the Australians don't like being told what to do and what to think. Now, Fred, I... I 
I am glad they showed that this time because after two and a half years of lockdown where I started to think they do like being told what to do and they do like being told what to think, but I think that's another factor. People realized that just about everything the government said during lockdown was wrong or debatable and it's going to be a lot harder to do that to us again. And so that probably helped uh, the no side in the voice campaign as well. Yeah, like you, I've detected a bit of a turnaround since COVID. Yeah. And I'd say, James, that this is the next best thing to a mandate for the opposition to start aggressively pursuing a conservative suite of policies, not just on Aboriginal welfare, but on energy, the economy, immigration and so on. Do you think the coalition will start shifting to the centre-right? My God, I hope so. I mean, here's the lesson. When they first announced it, the polls were about 70% yes. The Scott Morrison approach would be have a few focus groups and then just cave in. It shows you that if you have values and beliefs and you explain them to the average voter, you, you can move the room. And they moved it to 60% no. And so this idea that we, we have to do this because that's what the focus groups are, we have to park ourselves a centimeter to the right of labor, it's a losing strategy. It has yet to work. It's destroyed the Liberal Party at the state level. So I understand that there are professional politicians on the right side of politics who have no values at all. I like, I like Peter Dutton, and it, he, he could win the next election. Personally, I would come out against all the net zero garbage. They're building a, they're building a coal-fired powered plant every week in China. Forget India on top of that. So do that and cut back on the massive big-scale immigration. I don't know how many viewers know, but uh, gross domestic product per capita, per person, we are effectively in recession. It's not going up. And they just throw around this, this measure of gross domestic product. Mass immigration makes gross domestic product go up by definition. That's, you know, GDP measures economic activity. If you have two people living in a city and then it goes up to 20, GDP goes way up. But individuals could be way worse off. And I think, you know, they're, they've just, they're basically lying to the population on the benefits of mass immigration. We gotta cut it way back. Just bring in people who bring in skills we need. And I'm speaking as a Canadian here, so people might think that's ironic. But, you know, at some, to some extent, you bring in the people that will benefit the country. And right now we're just, it's just, you know, the universities are basically running visa programs. People yeah, come that's so they right. can get a visa. It's, it's yeah. shocking. Yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the lessons from this referendum is that common sense cuts through to the electorate. I mean, who knew, James? <laughs> You have to actually tell them your point of view and why you're going to work for it. Yeah, And yeah. you have to fight for something, you have to believe in something. Now, I think Dutton is good, but I, I worry about his advisors. I worry about the 25-year-olds who are advising him. Fire them all, bring in people who are, you know, over 40, who've seen a bit of the world and who believe in something. Yeah. Well, um, one of the few good things to come out of this referendum is that it has put the spotlight well and truly on Aboriginal welfare, which has been a, a troubling uh, phenomenon to Australians for uh, generations. Now, <laughs> James, giving them money, giving our Indigenous brothers and sisters money and land has not worked out too well, and we've been doing it for decades. What else do you think we might try? Well, the guy who seems to have put a lot of time into this and knows a fair bit is Gary Johns. And uh, as he points out, the 75-80% of Aboriginal people who live in the urban areas, their social statistics are pretty good. They're not as good as Caucasians, but they're close. It's the 20 to 25% who live in the middle of nowhere, Australia. And when you think about it, 
how do you improve the lot of people when there's no employment around, you're just getting mailed a welfare check, to some extent all the native title effectively is group ownership. You know, group ownership doesn't work in a modern capitalist economy. You have a set of incentives and if you work hard and you have to distribute it with every other person, you know, it, it doesn't really lend itself to a modern economic approach to life. So they've, I think they've got a lot of things they could fix up. Obviously, you want a safety net, but, mm. obvious, but equally obviously, just throwing money at things and giving people welfare. I like the idea of a full audit. Where does the money go? Uh, this whole voice thing was brought to you by the activist university class. I don't see any reason why we should be listening to them. Well, that's what, that, that, that's what I was going to lead to, actually. I mean, it's easy for us to be triumphant this Monday after such a thumping win on a Saturday. Well, you, know, you know what, Fred? It is easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you're hungover for yeah, one. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, the, the point is that this is only one small win in the battle. I mean, the, the bigger battle, as you alluded to, is the education system. Racial politics is so deeply embedded in our education system, from kindergarten right through to university, weeding it out. And, I mean, it's essentially, it's essentially Marxism. Weeding that out needs to be done. I mean, we can't sit back and go, oh, yeah, we won the referendum, you know, so job done. Um, th there's actually a much bigger job at hand, isn't there? I agree. I mean, it's true that Aboriginal education is some of the lowest in Australia, but you have to remember, put this in context, the Australian standards of education, the international testing comparison, we're below Kazakhstan and falling. We have given more and more money to the union-dominated education system, and we do worse and worse. Class size after a certain period does not correlate with results. You know, Korea, Singapore, they have large classes, perfect discipline, right? They have yes. old-fashioned methods. You're not there to explore the feelings of the student. You can't be creative until you know stuff. And we do badly in math. Uh, so basically, I think actually to criticize the uh, coalition, going to a national curriculum was a mistake. The sort of centralizing tendency, and this was a John Howard problem with work choices and the education. Why would you want one school curriculum for the whole country? Well, the normal answer is, if you believe that government gets things right, then you would have just one. If you think governments screw it up as often as they get it right, this is the argument for federalism, you want six, seven school curricula, and we can see the worst ones, and there's a little bit of competition, and people copy. You know, the US has 50 states. Some states delegate it down to the county level. There are hundreds of school curricula. Some are really good. Same in Canada. Alberta has a really good school system in Canada. Ontario and Quebec, not very good. And so this desire to centralize, it always presupposes a strong belief in the capability of government. I do not hold that belief. I think national standards, national curriculum, the whole attack on federalism has been a disaster. It's been partly driven by the central government, it's been partly driven by our top judges, the most centralizing judges in the sort of democratic world, the Australian High Court. Yeah, a lot of people have been, you know, talking about our precious constitution over the past few months. But what they fail to realise is the constitution is essentially just an agreement between the states. Yes. It's not an argument for, for centralisation of power, uh, especially in Indigenous affairs, I'd argue. But certainly, you know, Australians should have a choice of, look, I'm going to go and live in Queensland because, you know, they have a better education system up there or they have better industrial 
relations. Or, or lower taxes or, or whatever. Exactly, yeah. yes. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the tendency towards federalism or centralisation is something that Australians just think is natural, but it's absolutely not. And that's what that brings me to my next question, because the people who backed the yes side are now accusing people like you and I, James, of misinformation and disinformation. Now, unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly, they don't cite specific examples of, the, of this because there are none. There was no misinformation or disinformation coming from the no camp. But leftists have this magical ability to transform their opponents' reasonable arguments into so-called misinformation. Now, this seems to me to be a kind of mental illness, James, if I can be so unkind, but it doesn't bode well for the misinformation bill that the federal government is planning to introduce, does it? No, look, I know something about constitutional law. It's what I do for my day job. And there was, as far, I can't think of a single instance of misinformation coming from the no side. And so effectively think of it this way. They delegate this supposed fact-checking job to a bunch of academics at RMIT in Melbourne. And every time anyone disagrees with the expert panel, so in other words, the hand-picked group of people chosen by the Albanese government, paid by the Albanese government, if you disagree with them, that's deemed to be misinformation. And it's just not. There are some areas where people disagree, like when you're arguing about what the future high court is likely to do. And again, if you go back to the pandemic and you look at what government told us across a range of things, the, one of the top epidemiologists in the world, uh, Jai Bhattacharya, no right winger at Stanford, he has come out and said, in retrospect, the biggest source of disinformation came from government through two and a half years of lockdown. They were wrong on the effects of lockdown. They were wrong on school closures, which has been a disaster, on you know quantitative easing, printing money. They were wrong about the, whether vaccines would stop spread or sp stop you from getting it and whether it had something to do with your heart. They were wrong on everything. And it's those sort of people who wanted you to just abide by every little sort of thuggish diktat during lockdown who are now telling you, uh, if you disagree with RMIT, which you know contracts out its thinking to the expert panel. I mean, effectively what they're saying is former High Court Justice Ian Callanan is dealing in misinformation. It's laughable. Yeah. Or David Jackson, KC, who just before he died, he wrote a great submission to the... So these are people who've pointed out the problems with uh, The Voice. Well, we weren't able to get onto it in this interview, but this, on the same day as the referendum, Jacinda Ardern's uh, Labour Party was thoroughly destroyed yes. in the New Zealand uh, yes. election. Great. And that, that was the government under Jacinda Ardern who that disclaimer declared itself the sole source of truth. So maybe we'll talk about that next time you're on. But James, thank you. It's always good to see you, James. Well, it's it's nice, absolutely nice, great to see you in the studio. Oh, it's nice to be here. I'm just going to go off to the green room where you've got all that champagne. So it's just <laughs> phenomenal. Right I'll, I'll, I'll see, see you in the, the pool afterwards. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, James. Thanks. See you next time. Cheers. Great. That's Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland, James Allen. Well, according to the ABC, the no vote in the referendum on the weekend was not mainstream Australia cautiously declining a risky constitutional change, but white people arrogantly rejecting a generous offer of friendship from their Aboriginal brothers and sisters. Here's ABC Indigenous Affairs reporter Isabella Higgins ever so subtly warning us that, as a result, things are about to get nasty. 
this failing, this being rejected so categorically by all Australians, it will change the way Indigenous Australians want to interact with the rest of the country. It will change whether kindness is the best approach. I think often in the community it is well understood that black anger is not tolerated and so we see leaders pull in their rage, pull in their sadness and constantly use language of generosity, use graciousness to try and appeal to the Australian people. And after this, I think there will be a generation of leaders who have been burnt by this and who won't be interested in doing that anymore. She's not the only person proposing uh, aggression against us. Here is a bloke called Ethan Floyd at the pro-Palestine rally in Sydney's Hyde Park yesterday telling the crowd of about 5,000 mostly Arab people to recite a bunch of commandments from some 1960s freedom fighter. Thou shalt gather thy scattered people together. Thou shalt work for black liberation. Thou shalt resist assimilation with all thy might. Thou shalt not become a black liberal in a white society. Thou shalt not uphold the white lies in a black society. Thou shalt take back land stolen from thy forefathers. Thou shalt meet white violence with black violence. Thou shalt remove themselves from a sick white society. Thou shalt find peace and happiness in a stable black society. Thou shalt think black. And act black. Thou shalt be black. All the rest of thy days. Well, Ethan obviously left out the commandment that said thou shalt only drink soy lattes and chop the penises off boys who think they're girls, which given the demographic yesterday was a shrewd move. This is the culmination of decades of postmodern self-loathing in our education system, in which everything Western is seen as evil and everything else is exotic, meaningful and can't destroy our culture quickly enough. I attended the Pal that Palestinian rally in Hyde Park in Sydney yesterday and waited in, in vain for one, just one of the speakers to mention the true cause of the misery inside Gaza. That cause is, of course, Hamas, which governs Gaza with an iron fist. Hamas digs up water pipes and turns them into missiles to kill Israelis, rendering what is left of the water supply mostly undrinkable. It receives hundreds of millions of dollars in aid from the West and billions from Iran and Qatar, yet spends it all on ammunition and tunnels for military personnel. But the useless idiots at yesterday's rally blamed the great Satans of the United States and Australia because, you know, it just makes so much sense to blame the free, prosperous countries that take in Muslim refugees as a gesture of goodwill. 
The sooner we stop this, the better. But it's not going to happen under Labor, and it probably won't happen under the Coalition either. The speakers at the rally constantly spoke of the West being a coloniser, which was funny because there was some blatant colonising going on right in front of them yesterday. A couple of hundred men formed lines on the lawn to pray, with St Mary's Cathedral immediately behind them and the Shrine of Remembrance not far away at the other end of Hyde Park. These are two of the most sacred buildings in all of Sydney. Muslims don't need to build mosques to establish a, a stronghold in the new territories these days. They simply assemble in large groups in public spaces and pray. The message is clear. We don't respect your traditions and we don't need to because this is our park now. And yesterday, Hyde Park was theirs. Here is freelance reporter, a freelance reporter who goes by the name of Chris Coveries who discovered very quickly that Western rules of free speech did not apply in Hyde Park yesterday. I live stream on a channel called Discoveries and I ask people questions. And today, I thought I'd be able to ask a pretty broad-based question, which is, can you condemn gassing the Jews, which we said at last week's protest? I then asked to leave by the police because it was felt by the people in front of me saying, I'll smash you. I'll smash you is what was said. So you were, threatened, you were threatened with violence and you were the one told to leave? It's just how things are at these kind of protests. It's just how it goes. And I thought it was a question I could, I could ask because it's so broad-based. You know, do you support Fatah? What do you think about this? This is very detailed. Can you condemn gassing the Jews, as what was said last weekend? No, can't ask it. Did you feel intimidated? Yes, yes. But I've been to these things before, and there are so many police here that it wasn't too bad. But, you know, I, I've got to reframe what you can and cannot ask. I think it's more about the speech than the physical intimidation that what leads to it. As Idi Amin said, he can guarantee freedom of speech. He cannot guarantee freedom after speech. He's right. The constant chant at yesterday's rally was free, free Palestine, to which I wanted to chant back from Hamas which would have been a perfectly reasonable proposition, but not in that kind of crowd. The ABC doesn't need to warn us that hatred of Western civilization is about to rise up inside Western civilizations. It already has. As American commentator Chris Rufo said on the weekend, quote, Americans need to understand that the massacre in Gaza is not only a foreign outrage, the same ethno-radicals who cheer Hamas's destruction of civilization abroad also want to commit civilizational suicide here at home. Sadly, by letting that rally proceed in Sydney as the way it did on the weekend, Australia took one step closer to its own suicide. Well, of course, the West is not as evil as the people at that rally yesterday were led to believe. My next guest is Melbourne businessman Ron Finkel, who in 2013 established an absolutely wonderful collaboration between Israelis and Palestinians at a time when it was, and still is, sorely needed. It's called Project Rosanna, based at the Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem, and it has three main objectives. To train doctors and nurses from both sides of this conflict, to transport patients to Hadassah Hospital when they are unable to get there themselves, 
and of course to provide medical care. In many cases, when a patient is collected from the border at Gaza to be taken for free treatment at, treatment at Hadassah, the driver is the first Jewish person the patient has ever met. This is an extraordinary story of human compassion in a place where it is in very short supply. Ron Finkel joins me now. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fred. Pleased to be here. Ron, you say that medicine is a way for people from both sides of this conflict to understand their common humanity. Can you elaborate on that? Sure, Fred. Look, in every society, um, there's a need for people to get to know the other. The context of Israel-Palestine is such that over the last 20 years, at the very least, certainly over the last 20, 22 years, there's been a growing chasm between Israelis and Palestinians, very little direct contact um, across border, and a young generation of Israelis and young generation of Palestinians have grown up, have had zero interaction with each other. And in that environment, you actually can be guaranteed that narratives lead to all sorts of different outcomes. One of the pathways that is really destructive is the pathway of delegitimization and dehumanization. And unfortunately, that's that's a, a, a growing problem in the region. Doctors, nurses, health practitioners, health is a space, a safe space. No matter what happened the last 10 years, the people who promoted non-normalization between Palestinians and Israelis never, ever touched the health space. It was a given that if there is a critical ill Palestinian child in need of treatment for their blood cancer, they will be transferred to the hospitals in Israel for treatment. They are they get the, the referral from the Palestinian Authority. The only impediment to them getting from their home to the hospitals in Israel is the challenges of financing the trip. Some of these kids have to do four and five trips a week that cost cannot be borne by the families. So we are very privileged and in a position to help by providing volunteer drivers and also bus services that we cover the cost of and the, the families and the children get the, the medical treatment that they deserve. What benefits do you see coming and from need. this, Ron? Do, do you see them, I mean, does this have, have an effect on those kids and those families? Do they suddenly realise that... Israelis aren't that bad? The truth is that for our Wheels of Hope program, which is one of the seven programs that we run, the Wheels of Hope program, we are just beginning to do the analysis by taking questionnaires and trying to understand what happens in the terms of engagement and empathy. I, um, I wouldn't be so bold as to say that um, it is a guaranteed success story in that regard. The evidence, the anecdotal evidence is very, very positive. But what I can say is that the, 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 the work that we do in the other spaces with doctors and nurses has already had measurable impact on scale. And that's really important, Fred, because we all know if people are asked, who do they rate as the people in their community the most respected? It's inevitably the health professionals. Top of the, top of the table generally there's a competition between nurses and doctors, but doctors, nurses, uh, and other health 
professionals are the key players. Now, if you are able to engage those communities of, of professionals on scale, what you find, and it's fascinating and really important, is that they have a common language. They have a universal language of health. When you bring nurses who are Palestinian and nurses who are Israeli together, they find common cause. They find, they start warily, but they, as the more that they engage together, they find that they share a common mission. And as they do that, their levels of distrust diminish, their level of fear is mitigated, and most important, level of empathy rises dramatically and we have measured this this is not an anecdote anymore this is really stuff that we do on a research basis the same as with doctors and i'll tell you i just want to point out with you what do they do very natural human instinct in the in the 21st century they set up their own whatsapp groups they set up their own whatsapp groups so they can share their experiences doctors and nurses and it's been fascinating we've we've, we've done one with doctors as soon as they finish the first pilot program the 20 doctors that were in that pilot program, these were trauma emergency medicine doctors, physicians, they set up a WhatsApp group. In 2022, we trained another 100. They became part of 120. Today, there are nearly 200 of these doctors on both sides, equal numbers, and they share cases, they share concerns, and it's fabulous. So what, you, you say that uh, in the West Bank, things are not as intense as in Gaza. What's the difference between the two regions? Why? I mean, I know one is run by Fatah, uh, Fatah and the other is run by Hamas. Um, but can you describe the differences from your experience? Yeah, look, I, again, I want to make sure that you understand. I'm not a politician. I don't pretend to be a political analyst. But what we can observe from our work is that People in Gaza, the Gazan situation is one of 75 years pretty much of dependence on handout. In that kind of environment, people haven't been given agency to really pursue what they need to pursue. And I see it all the time. Um, on the other hand, in the West Bank, they aren't dependent on handout. There's been a lot of agency and the Palestinians in the West Bank have built their own economic infrastructure. Education is high quality. Hospitals are, are good. Um, there's, a, there's much more potential for aspiration in the West Bank than there is in Gaza. That has to be dealt with. I, I, I don't know what the mechanism is to do it, but there has to be a transition from handout to hand up, from aid to development. You give people the capacity to grow, to pursue their aspirations and to do stuff, you will create a, a society that's got much more sustainability than the current situation in Gaza, more akin to what's going on in, in the West Bank. Well, not unrelated to that, Ron, is the idea, is the concept of psychiatric help for these kids. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like for a kid to grow up in Gaza. It must be Awful. Can you describe, I mean, you do provide uh, psychiatric help at Hadassah Hospital for these kids. Yes. What kind of, what mental conditions do you find they have and how hard is it for kids to not grow up to be jihadis in Gaza? Okay, that, that's, a, that's a loaded question. Let me, let me divide, let me focus on the first part of it because I, I'll come to the second part in a moment. But the first part of it is... Conflict generates trauma. Trauma is a precursor to PTSD. And PTSD is unfortunately relative, 
relatively pervasive amongst the child child and adolescent communities on both sides. Don't don't discount the traumatic effects. So we, in 2016, with the assistance, financial assistance of World Vision Australia, embarked on a program to upskill Palestinian Israeli child psychologists to better treat children who are evidencing PTSD. That program was then underpinned by financing from the European Union, and it's been going. We, we are quite clear that the upskilling for treatment is a necessity. It's the it's the professionals that need to be to be helped. Um, we have a, a a proposal into the EU at the moment to expand the skill sets of GPs, nurses, teachers, social workers in those communities, so that they will be better able to identify the early stages of PTSD. Now, on the on the uh, in the big picture. It's a huge problem. The loaded question that I'm referred to before is, does it generate jihadis? I have no way of knowing. I don't know what the correlation is between um, what a traumatized child has gone through and their ideological propensity to take on an Islamist point of view. I don't have any doubt that there are a small, small, small proportion who will ultimately be sucked into the the ideology of Hamas or the Islamist brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood. But I don't think that's the case for the vast majority. They 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 want their challenge, their psychological challenges addressed, but they want to live a good life. Well, that is a very optimistic message at a time of awful despair from from the region. Ron, we've run out of time. There's so much, there's a lot more questions I wanted to ask. We'll have to get you back on pretty soon, but thank you so much for your time today. That's fine. Just one thing I wanted to say. My my favourite four-letter word is H-O-P-E. And it's the one thing that we have to hang on to because no matter what the circumstances, there are threads of hope that we can we can work with. Very well said. There is always hope as long as there is life. Thank you so much for your time, Ron Finkel. Thank you, Fred. That's the founder of the Rosanna Project, Ron Finkel from Melbourne. Introducing the co-hosts of Parting Shots, the weekly news podcast from ADH. Well, obviously it's a very exciting opportunity for Fred. He's been on my back for years to do this with him, so in the end I just said yes. Yeah, Ning told me about this idea a couple of weeks ago and I thought, couldn't I do one with Alan Jones instead? You couldn't have two more very different guys. Fred's just a knockabout surfy, catches a wave, rides with it. I'm more, bring a bit more intellectual depth to it, just get below the surface of each issue. Oh, yeah, Nick is so annoying. Just because he's got a weekly column in The Australian, he thinks he knows everything. I worry about the amount of time that Fred spends out in the surf, you know, he's inclined to get a little bit of water on the brain. Oh, 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 hang on. It says on this surf forecast app that the swell's picking up this afternoon. Can we finish this tomorrow? Well, obviously, Fred, Fred asked me to host it. He's, you know, he's a great Aussie larrikin, but I, I guess he lacks the, the gravitas that you bring to it as a former newspaper editor. Of course, I only agreed to do the podcast because the boss said I could be the host. I mean, I respect Nick and everything, but you can't have a pommy host of an Australian news podcast, can you? 
Search Spotify for parting shots. Welcome back. Well, like the brilliant economists that they are, most politicians these days have calculated that if speech is free, then it can't be worth much. The only speech they value is the speech that big pharma and big tech tell them to make. And one day we might find out how much they were paid to do so. But for people outside their exalted exclusive circles, like you and I, free speech is priceless. Especially now when our civilization is under constant threat and we, you know, often need to talk about it. Speech in Australia is already more restricted than at almost any time since the colony was settled 235 years ago. It starts with legislation that is drafted in deliberately vague and subjective terms so that even mildly robust language, no matter how true or well-intended, can lead an ordinary person into years of litigation hell. My colleague, Lyle Shelton, is now in his third year of litigation after saying in 2020 that transgender people are not very good role models for children. Three years later, and it has cost him $300,000 or more, and it still hasn't finished. Luckily, Lyle has friends with deep pockets. But what about people who don't? That is where self-censorship comes in, and that is practiced daily by almost every person in Australia. Even if you say something that doesn't raise the ire of the finger-wagging bureaucrats who can ruin your life at the stroke of a pen, you still risk rousing the voluntary lynch mobs who roam around social media and are no less powerful. Well, the Australian branch of a British organisation founded to take on the zealots of the zeitgeist has now arrived in Australia. It's called the Free Speech Union, founded by well-known British writer Toby Young in 2020, mostly to fight the scourge of cancel culture in Britain. My next guest, Dara MacDonald, is a Sydney lawyer who became alarmed by that very same phenomenon a few years ago and her requests for Young to open an Australian franchise with her as the advocacy director finally came true last week. Dara, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Fred. Dara, firstly, how restricted is speech in Australia at the moment and how much more danger is it in? It is extremely restricted and is restricted on multiple fronts. It's restricted, of course, through the legislation that we have. We have multiple pieces of legislation, both state and federal, that impinge on our right to freedom of speech. But this is not all, and this is where the Free Speech Union really comes into its own, not just to fight the battles, um, the political battles, and wind back some of these impingements on free speech in the legislative realm, but also in the cultural realm. We see so many people that are subjected to council culture. Um, they're 
there is a popular belief amongst people that are skeptics of this, this uh, phenomenon we call cancel culture, that it's only really the, the big wigs, you know, the JK Rowlings and so on that are getting cancelled um, and they have deep pockets, so what's the problem? Um, they have the ability to fight when, some, when a mob comes for them. But for the ordinary people, in ordinary situations in Australian society, they are subjected to the same things. There are so many cases of people that have disciplinary hearings at work based on things they've said outside of work that have no bearing on their ability to practice their jobs, which is one of the main functions of the free speech well, let's union. Get to, let's get to those cases in a minute, but I just want to dwell for a second on those two aspects that you referred to and that I talked about in, in my introduction. Let's talk about the legislation. Which legislation troubles you the most? Unfortunately, it is quite innumerable in the sense that there are many different uh, pieces of legislation that impinge on freedom of speech. One of the main, uh, main, main uh, types of legislation that we see are definitely the Anti-Discrimination Acts, be it the Racial Discrimination Act with its infamous Section 18C, which has caused many issues in Australia. Um, but there's also state laws that are equivalent that have also been used to infringe the free speech rights of Australian citizens. When Section 18C was introduced in the mid-90s, it was, it was introduced by a Labor Attorney-General called Michael Lavarch. I remember looking into it some years ago and was alarmed when I saw him refer to the section or justify that section by saying he thought that that bit of legislation was, this is the word he used, educative. Now this was, I, I think, I mean, there are educative aspects to law, I know that, but this, this uh, section was introduced, in my opinion, by authoritarian politicians who wanted to teach plebs, like you and I, that what, what the confines of their speech was, and it was dictated by them, and it was, of course, contrary to our freedom of speech and therefore freedom of thought. But, I mean, is that the, is that the intention of this kind of legislation, to teach ordinary people how to behave? I think th there are multiple different um, intentions at play. The, the one that you're referring to is definitely a case of them trying to nudge us into a particular direction and have particularly with particular ideas of what is considered civil. For the most part, I, th I think these uh, pieces of legislation are well intended. The problem is, is that they're counterproductive to the extent that uh, hate speech laws, which is essentially what the Section 18C uh, of the Racial Discrimination Act is, is effective. It, it actually has been shown by um, many academics to be completely ineffective at, at ch driving change, what happens is that people just make, uh, have those conversations around those, the, the dinner table and in private rather than in public. So it actually doesn't uh, create the effect that these, these politicians that um, put forward these legisla this legislation actually intends, in the sense that it doesn't change how we speak. It, doesn't, yeah, it does change how a, we speak in public, but it doesn't change how we speak in private. And that, it doesn't stop us thinking these things. Exactly. That, well, and that's a very good point. I, and I'd argue, in fact, that Australia 
is, uh, is probably a more racist place now since 18C because, uh, I mean, we saw it on the steps of the Sydney Opera House uh, just, uh, just last week. Um, people chanting death to Jews. I mean, you wouldn't have seen that in the mid-90s. Australia was a friendlier place back then. So perhaps this legislation does have a, uh, a, a sort of ulterior um, effect. So let's talk about cancel culture because that's people who, as I said in the introduction, roam around social media looking for, you know, people to sacrifice on their, the altar of uh, political correctness. How bad is that in Australia? The, the unfortunate thing is we don't actually know how bad it is because your average Joe doesn't have someone to support them in that instance. So we do hear about the high profile cases of people that have been mobbed. Um, your, your friend Bill Lee comes as a, a prime example of someone that I can think of. But the extent to which it affects the ordinary people in, in the society, we don't know because there is no one that is coming to their aid. And this is, again, why the Free Speech Union is ne so necessary because the, our, our aim and our mission is to come to the aid of people that are, have ordinary jobs, ordinary families that are, that are subject to this cancel culture. OK, let's talk about one of those cases because you have a case already. I mean, talk about the country needing the Free Speech Union. You've already got one case about a, a, a kid who was confused about what she saw in the girls' bathroom at school. Tell us about that. To correct you, this is not a case where the parents have come to us. This is something that we've seen and decided to intervene on because it is such a a horrific issue in the sense that it involves a 10-year-old girl who has autism and she was alarmed to see, and I use quotes here, someone with boy parts in the girl's toilets. This is something that us adults, this, the, the gender debate is something that is raging very furiously and something that us adults are trying to comprehend ourselves, let alone a 10-year-old girl and a 10-year-old girl with a diagnosis of autism being able, able to understand this. And to the great shame of the school, what they've decided to do is suspend this 10-year-old girl from her, her ability to get an education. Um, this is just one of the very... It, so, it, but just tell me, just tell me how free speech comes into this. Did she complain to the teachers or, or, or question the teachers? or how, how does free speech come into that? Our understanding is that she merely questioned this student's uh, ability to use the bathroom when they have, you know, boy parts. That's my, that's the understanding is that it's merely a, a questioning of why the student was in there. They didn't understand. As you can imagine, this is a very confusing issue for lots of children. And they've merely, they've merely posed the question as to why that student was in there. So how does the Free Speech Union operate in this instance and in general? So this is a case where we've decided to intervene by, by writing a letter to the principal asking for the student's reinstatement because clearly this is uh, infringement of her free speech rights and, has in, and in doing so they've even gone to the extent of depriving her of an education for the period of the suspension. So we've, we've considered this a particularly cruel instance of compelled speech. Do, do, does that child have a right to free speech? Sorry if I sound naive, but is, do we have a right to free speech in Australia? Well, 
this is the, this is the issue that I, I guess we're, we're going to have to confront. In, uh, this happened in Victoria, so we are actually going to lean on the Charter of Human Rights in Victoria, which for better or for worse, is, is there and has not, hasn't proven very useful, to be honest, previously. But we can lean on that piece of legislation in that instance, um, amongst other different pieces of legislation, particularly because this is involving a child with autism. We're also going to lean on the Anti-Discrimination Acts, which I also just talked about, but in this instance is actually um, proving quite useful to, to lean on that as well. So do you defend all comers? We have a, a policy that we will not, um, a very reasonable policy, I, I would say, is that we're very much in the line of the First Amendment. We will not defend uh, incitements to violence of any kind. But for the most part, we are a non-political and non-partisan organisation. So we will defend the right of left wing activists to say left wing things as well as right wing activists to say right wing things to say ordinary people to say whatever the hell they want which is non-political in and in many cases in fact what are the cases that we see in other free speech unions these are not people that are having particular political opinions they've just said something that is currently considered taboo or impolite so based on you, the current zeitgeist. And you mentioned earlier that there are some of the people who are suffering you know ordinary people that we don't hear about uh, are people who lost their jobs for things that they said outside work that doesn't affect their ability to uh, to do their to do their jobs? Is that right? Yeah. So this is something we don't have data on in Australia or um, an understanding of exactly how deep these issues are. It is when a, a body like the Free Speech Union in the UK comes into effect, and we see the cases of uh, particularly a, a guy that works works in a supermarket that posted tweets that who was subject to disciplinary action. So these people that have ordinary jobs, that work in a supermarket, there was a, you know, a case, a very interesting case in New Zealand as well, who also have a free speech union, where there was a mortician who misgendered a, a cadaver, so a, a dead body, and, and was subject to disciplinary action from her employer based on that. So really ludicrous cases of, you know, arguably no one's been offended because the, obviously the person is dead. <laughs> Um, so really ludicrous cases of people with just ordinary jobs doing ordinary things that have just, for whatever reason, stepped outside the, the bounds of what we consider acceptable, polite speech But who are society. the people complaining about this sort of stuff? They're nearly always from the left, aren't they, Dara? Well, in the case of the uh, mortician, it was her employer. So it's not necessarily that there's these mobs going around on social media. Sometimes it is the case that there's pressure put on the employer to uh, discipline the employee in question. But sometimes it's just in these organisations, there's particularly uh, tyrannical people that would like to see a person sacked for having a particular opinions. We've seen in, in the States, for instance, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, publishing houses that's where the the employees have had a revolt, you know, a revolt based on the um, the publishing of various authors, and so you can see it's not necessarily that as a woke mob roaming Twitter and putting pressure on these organisations. Sometimes it's it's coming from the employees of the organisation to do something about. The yeah, people. but these these complaints that the, I mean the, the few the few examples that you've given us are, are particularly absurd, and you know five or ten years ago if you'd said this was going to happen in Australia you would have laughed. But 
my, my point is that generally it's people from the left who are a little bit, whose mind, who have the sort of woke mind virus and uh, don't really see things very rationally or don't respect other people's freedom of speech. Do, is that a pattern? Is it always the left who complain about this stuff? At the moment, it, it has become a, a bit more of a right-wing thing to, to uh, defend freedom of speech, but it doesn't always have to be the case. There are issues, um, particularly if you look at, for instance, the gender-critical feminists, a lot of them are not you know, right-wing in any sense or conservative or in any sense. They have very left-wing positions on many things, but yet because they're, they're uh, pushing back against something that is considered taboo in our society, um, they, they are also under attack. So I wouldn't necessarily consider it a left-wing or right-wing divide by default. It's just that the current moment we're living in is that this kind of woke idea is in ascendancy. And because it's in ascendancy, it's the, the kind of the, you know, the, um, the, the thing that is creating all of the taboos and what we're allowed to yeah. say and think in our society. It just means that these are the things that people are tripping over. These are the things that um, you're not allowed to say at the moment. It could yeah. be that if if we lived in a completely different country with a you know a tyrannical uh, you know religious dictator, we would also see a, a very different pattern potentially. Dara, that's that is very well said, and I can see that you've thought about this a lot, and that you uh, you are very even-handed when it comes to the right of other people to say what they think and uh, to have their ideas contested in the marketplace. Do you think Australians understand how precious their free speech is? I think for the most part, Australians do have a very gut level understanding, just purely culturally. I mean, we have this concept of the larrikin, for instance, that you can be um, a little bit terse, a little bit uh, outrageous at times even. And so on a very deep cultural level, I think Australians do have an understanding of this, but I think we've lost it. Uh, and I definitely lost the ability to articulate the importance of this, not just in kind of a rabble-rousing sense, but as, as being deeply important to our ability to talk through things, to be able to debate things, to have actually a democratic process, because if we can't discuss things openly, we can't disagree with one another, the only thing left is our fists and <laughs> violence. So we have to be able to talk. We can't, there's no other way. Indeed. And two of the most amazing things about Australian culture is, firstly, that we are very plain speakers. We, you know, we call a spade a spade and that's a quality and that we always deliver it in good humour. We're funny people and, uh, you know, people who take offence are the ones who I think are pretty much destroying what makes this country a fun place to live in. Dara MacDonald, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Dara MacDonald, who is now at the front line to defend free speech in Australia. And you can join the Free Speech Union, which is first and foremost dedicated to defending the rights of its members. So if you envisage needing protection from the government's overreach in this area, and let's be honest, who doesn't, sign up and become a member at freespeechunion.au. Membership starts at $49. Use the code ADHTV to receive a special 25% discount on all membership categories. That's freespeechunion.au. Even if you don't think you will one day require their services, it's worth supporting anyway because 
The, the Free Speech Union is also dedicated to keeping the reins on the forces of censorship in general. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. This is ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary. I'll see you next Tuesday, next Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.